0: It is Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Thank you for tuning in. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern time, and then around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the political editor at Townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on the panel on set here at the Bureau in D.C. Mike Emanuel sitting in for Brett Bayer tonight, right around quarter to 7 Eastern time, Fox News Channel. On the radio side of the world, here's what we've got in store. Katie Pavlich this hour. Bill Malugin in studio next hour. Dr. Marty McCarry joining us also in our second middle hour. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz, will be here to round things out guest-wise in our final hour, which we call the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern. A lot to get to on the show today. I want to actually start slightly off the beaten path with a long story. It prints out to like 15 pages from Politico. It's about Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. And while I'm sure he and his team might object or disagree on some of the elements of the story, I don't think it's a hit piece. I think it's actually an exploration of something quite interesting about DeSantis, particularly if he has designs on running for president, which I suspect he does. I don't know for sure if he's going to do it or not. We'll probably have to wait until May to find out because the Florida legislative session is just for a couple of months. He'll have his hands full. I think he's happy to have that built-in delay until the spring. In fact, we talked about that a tiny bit yesterday here on the show. Yesterday, uh, I just said yesterday twice – Because it was, in fact, yesterday that we had Josh Krasauer here who had written a piece about how the Republican primary field for 2024 is a bit frozen at the moment. Trump got in early. No one else is jumping in yet. People kind of looking down to Tallahassee. What's Ron going to do, et cetera? And I also yesterday read at length from a piece at The American Mind. With someone who is inclined to be a Trump admirer, certainly sharing Trump's worldview and sort of vision for the Republican Party, making a case why Trump would be not only a poor choice, but an indefensible, almost anti-rational choice for Republican voters to make again. That wasn't the case in 2016, is the implication, or 2020, he's running for re-election. But to try a third time, he argued, William Vogley would be a big mistake, and I read fairly extensively from his piece. So while we're on the topic of the 2024 presidential election, why not explore, think about, as Politico has, one of the potential shortcomings that has been discussed about Governor DeSantis? I think a lot of the hits against him are nonsense. I think some of the media attacks on him as proxies, sort of auxiliaries for the Democratic Party, have fallen flat on their face because they are factually challenged and he's very, very good at defending himself specifically on substance. So when he's being maligned or it's unfair, we have come to his defense many times on this show. I'm sure that will happen again and again, if I had to guess. But, but, I will say this, having met him a couple times, Including, you might remember, last year we had him here for the better part of an hour. More than half an hour of uninterrupted sit-down time with him on the air. We broke it up into three long segments here on this show at the governor's mansion down there. That was in the course of a visit when I also ended up having an off-the-record dinner with him. And then drinks and cigars out at the governor's mansion afterwards. That whole day spanned a number of hours, and it was not a big group of us, so I've not gotten to know him very well, but I've gotten to know him a little bit and experience him not in his, like, very official on-camera capacity with that sort of presence. This was an off-the-record event, and I will abide by the -the off-the-record strictures, but one of the things that has come up about DeSantis, that he's not really very personally warm and likable. He's not that personable. He can be a little bit aloof. And I would say that based on having met him a couple different times, including that more extended visit, some of those criticisms, I think, are grounded in reality. And it's something if someone has national ambitions, that they should be at least thinking about. And DeSantis seems to me like a very, very smart guy who can hear criticism and then can respond to it, either react and push back or internalize certain things and then adjust. And I think having an instinct for doing both of those things when called for is a great strength. Because some people, I think, the... Inclination, the instinct, is to immediately bristle at anything negative that you hear about yourself or your style and then just fight back and double down. And sometimes that's the right thing. Sometimes it might behoove you to listen and maybe try to change a little bit if the critique, if, in this case, the detractor, might have a point or might be on to something. Right? Adjustment is part of being, I think, successful in life, certainly successful in politics. Now, there are some people who just, you know, won't do that. They are who they are. And frankly, DeSantis could be forgiven for saying to hell with any of that. Right. The guy just won a reelection in Florida, the likes of which we've never seen. I mean, that's a state Barack Obama won twice in 2018. He won by 0.4 percent. DeSantis did. In his first election. Very, very closely divided state for a very, very long time. He has turned it redder than ever. Not just in terms of Republicans moving there, Republicans turning out the state getting redder. You don't win by 20 points by only turning out your base. You do it by winning groups that Republicans don't always do well with, like independents and Hispanics which is what exactly what DeSantis did. So you can say he's obviously got a formula that's working. Why would he need to change? And I think that would be a reasonable point to make. But if there's something looking forward, if there is a national ambition on the horizon and there's something of a reputation that might not be helpful toward achieving the goal, DeSantis strikes me as the type of guy – who might be willing to take that on in a serious way. Not to fight it, but to move a little bit, to shift, to evolve in a, conscience, in a conscious and deliberate way. Which brings me to this Politico story. The headline is, Ron DeSantis takes on the likability issue, then parentheses, sort of. The GOP's great hope to defeat Trump—this is the subhead— Is hot on Fox, but cold on the stump and in the VIP line, will it matter? And the story begins with this anecdotal lead about several hundred major donors arriving at his inauguration a couple weeks ago. There was a candlelight dinner, and in a departure, I'm quoting now, from the pedestrian fair found at most political banquets, DeSantis, a food lover with Italian roots, flew in the crew from Carbone, the trendy New York-founded restaurant chain that moved to Miami last year to both make a point about companies relocating to Florida and to offer a treat to contributors who gave at least $25,000. Yet, what was even more of a thrill to the donors than Carbone's signature spicy rigatoni was what happened during the dinner. DeSantis and his wife, Casey, went table-to-table greeting and thanking the attendees. Such a gesture would hardly be noteworthy for most politicians, but the early rap on DeSantis from his fellow Republicans is that for all his smarts and shrewdness, he lacks charm and is either un- unwilling, either unwilling or unable to submit to the long-standing rituals of retail politics. So the mere fact that he table hopped at a dinner in his honor and that more than a few of his contributors were thrilled enough about the personal touch to recount it to me after the closed press event is revealing. So, this is the Politico writer, Jonathan Martin, who has this very long piece. The governor's glad handing illustrates that he's absorbed the critique about his aloofness and is making an effort to rebut it. He could use more such moments, Jonathan Martin writes. And he quotes Francis Rooney, who's a big Republican donor down in Florida. He says he thinks the party's financiers are ready to move on from Trump, but Rooney was candid about DeSantis' persona. Quote, Ron is a little reserved and dry compared to George W. Bush or Bill Clinton. He is what he is. So what he needs to do is organize his campaign to minimize that characteristic. And the griping, Martin writes at Politico, comes mostly for now from Republican donors, but people around him are thinking about DeSantis' capacity for forging connections with people which is sort of that old school retail politics, which may not matter as much anymore. But I would argue, especially in certain states and primary contests, it does matter. So the story goes on and on. And at one point, they quote a lot of people who are contrasting DeSantis with Jeb Bush, how Jeb Bush really had built up this whole network of supporters. And he had this very powerful family, a phalanx of governors who – Immediately, if not preemptively, offered endorsements for president, all these strategists and donor networks and all of this stuff working in his favor. I actually view that, and I say I don't really think that reflects poorly on DeSantis at all. Jeb Bush, who I think is a smart guy, was actually a very good governor of Florida. He was not the right man for the moment in 2016, obviously. Voters, Republican voters, just overwhelmingly rejected him. And all of this sort of Republican network stuff and having all the right people and all the money on his side, it didn't help him at all. I think DeSantis being, despite having held office for a while now, still an outsider and not really super chummy with that establishment, I think that is a feature, not a bug when it comes to Ron DeSantis. But on the warmth and the personal touch it seems like he recognizes that he needs to do more of it, which is why he's changing. Right. This is something that's been whispered about some Trump people who aren't fans of DeSantis or they have been fans of DeSantis, but now they view him as a threat. They'll kind of pull you aside at events and say, oh, you know, Ron's kind of weird. You know, he's, he's just not that likable. He doesn't really like people that much. He's cold. He's not going to light up a room with a bunch of, you know, uh, enthusiasm, although he can do that politically speaking, not necessarily personally. That's sort of the argument, right? It's not this very intense charisma that connects with people, and that's fine. You can't can't manufacture that, right? To some extent, you've got that or you don't, but you can make a concerted effort to improve if you realize that's the critique— That might hurt you with donors and might hurt you with grassroots voters, especially in like a place like New Hampshire. You can strategically try to maneuver. And improve. I think and they didn't ask me for this advice at all, just from an unsolicited vantage point. Having watched mostly from the outside, occasionally a little bit on the inside. What I saw from DeSantis When he was most engaged, not about politics, because he really engages intellectually on policy, on politics. He's very smart. He thinks about things extremely carefully. He knows his stuff. To me, that is one of the most attractive qualities of Ron DeSantis. He will fight. He will fight hard and win. He will do so anticipating his opponent's arguments and having much more knowledge of the issue than they do. And just systematically dismantling it. I love that about him. But in terms of him coming to life on something other than that. right? If you just want to say he's this really brilliant, shrewd, successful, competent political robot. What else is there to him? I saw him come to life with more sparkle in his eyes talking about his family. His wife, who is very charming. And his little kids. Playing baseball, for example, with his son, that was a side of him that i hadn't seen very much, and we got into just a little bit of it at the end of my interview with him on this program last year, which you can google. you can find it easily if you want to go back and hear it. I think it would benefit him to lean a little bit more into that side, and he might not love the gland hating or the the glad handing and the you know table to table backslapping and listening to people and asking them about their lives and laughing at their jokes even if they're lame from people like me he might not love it but i think if he's as disciplined as i think he is i think he can train himself to do more of it as a necessity for the job that he might want don't know that for sure i just thought this was a very interesting Story. You could frame it if you wanted to. I could have come on here railing about Politico in another hit piece against Ron DeSantis. Very well might be the case down the line again. Almost certainly. They hate him in the press. This, I think, is something that is a real issue for him. And based on the story, it sounds like he gets that too and is adjusting accordingly. accordingly, which is the sign, at least to me, a sign of maturity and seriousness. We'll see how it plays out. Now, he is firing back at the White House over something that they said about him. He's getting the best of Corrine Jean-Pierre. Not that that's terribly challenging, uh, given her challenges. But we'll play you that audio as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh
2: conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: We have seen
3: Governor DeSantis do political stunts. Uh, that is how he how he perceives to fix uh, the uh, this issue from Florida. Uh, and he is not dealing with the problem. He's actually creating a problem. And, uh, and so that's what I have to say to that. We've talked about Governor De- DeSantis and, the uh, again, what he, the mockery that he's making of a process that the president is trying to fix.
0: Back on The Guy Benson Show, Corinne Jean-Pierre at the White House last week saying DeSantis is causing border crisis problems and making a mockery of the situation. Okay. Some of that's involving the involvement of the Coast Guard, which actually ended up asking for more help from the state of Florida because of the issue they were having of migrants coming to Florida. DeSantis this week on Fox & Friends Responding, cut 23.
4: The Coast Guard had brought in like 300 people uh, that they had onboarded and, and put them in the Florida Keys. Well, they, they didn't have the ability to take care of those folks. There's vessels left everywhere and people's property and all this. So we declared a state of emergency. We provided uh, Coast Guard the assistance that they've asked for. We are going to clear the vessels free of charge for those residents because it wasn't their, their fault. Maybe we'll send the bill to Biden. We'll see. But uh, the reality is... The Coast Guard stretched so thin, and what the Coast Guard has told us is we are not going to get additional resources from the federal government. Like, this is what we have. So we're basically filling gaps that the federal government should be filling and would be filling um, if they wanted to do it. I would just tell the White House, uh, not only has the Coast Guard asked us to help, um, but we have no choice but to help because of your neglect and incompetence.
0: That was a clip played on Fox and Friends. The response, the reply from Governor DeSantis to the White House, neglect and incompetence sounds about right to me. Katie Pavlich up next on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned.
3: Pull up a chair and join
5: me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America.
2: Download from The Kitchen Table, The Duffy's, at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Chugging ahead, it's The Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in. With us now, Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com, my colleague there. Fox News contributor, my colleague here. Also, my friend Katie, it's good to have you back as always.
1: Great to be on the show, Guy. Thank you.
0: So I wanted to start with some comments that President Biden made yesterday in Washington, D.C. He was speaking to the National Action Network, which is Al Sharpton's group. And just as a quick aside for me, Al Sharpton rose to prominence as – a race liar, a proven smearer of police, and a fomenter of race riots. And just the way his image has been rehabilitated is extraordinary to me, given the things that he has done in the past. Be that as it may, Biden was at National Action Network on MLK Day, and he had many interesting thoughts on many different topics, including – how law enforcement officers should do their job differently than they do. In Cut 20, here's part of what he said.
5: To emphasize de-escalation, we have to retrain cops. as to Why should you always shoot for de- with deadly force? The fact is, if you need to use your weapon, you don't have to do that. And, look, to call a fresh approach to recruit and how we recruit, how we hire, how we train, how we promote, and how we retain, retain law enforcement.
0: So, I mean, some of that stuff sounds fine, at least in theory. Uh, you know, the new approach, I think, it would depend on the details, and maybe what he has in mind is is not what would be a great approach. But he was saying if they need to use their weapons, they don't have to do that. I think he means shooting with deadly force. This seems to be kind of a version of the why don't cops just shoot criminals in the knee type argument that we hear sometimes that I think betrays, Katie, total ignorance of how law enforcement is trained for good reason?
1: Well, they're completely counterproductive arguments. You can't on one hand say you need to find ways to retain police uh, to address this issue of morale and recruitment, which has been fomented by the defund the police movement for exactly the reason Joe Biden just said because of all the second guessing of every single move that police make, uh, 99% of the shootings that go, go on in this country from police using deadly force are justified. Uh, and yet the president wants to put police in a position that are not only dangerous for them, but dangerous for their communities because then the police don't actually engage in active policing to make sure that criminals aren't running the streets. And there was a story two years ago of a Chicago police officer who hesitated to use uh, fatal force against a criminal and he beat her within an inch of her life and almost killed her and it was a result of this idea that police have to think twice in a situation where you have you know a split second to make a life or death uh, decision and when it comes from the president of the united states um on martin luther king jr day uh from an ignorant position while he's also trying to somehow argue we need to keep police recruiting high, Uh, they're completely counterproductive measures. um, And it's contrary to the way that the president has really handled this topic in the past on a policy level.
0: Then on the issue of guns and gun control, he sort of brought back and revived an argument that he has made several times before, uh, which I think is really not nearly as clever as he apparently thinks it is kind of saying, well, if the armed citizenry really wants to guard itself against a tyrannical government, well, good luck because we've got, he said in the past, nuclear weapons. In this case, he was talking about fighter jets. Here's Cut 21.
5: I love my right-wing friends who talk about the tree of liberty is water with the blood of patriots. If you need to work about taking on the federal government, you need some F-15s. You don't need an RAR-15. I'm serious. Think about it.
0: Well...
6: His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
0: Our mutual friend Mary Catherine Hamm said it's not really maybe making the point that he wants to make about the need for citizens to arm themselves and defend themselves by saying, well, you stupid, dumb, dumb citizens, uh, we have fighter bombers that can, you know, Kill you, basically. I I feel like I get maybe the point he's trying to make. It just doesn't seem like it's a wise one that actually reinforces the lesson that he, at least in my mind, is trying to.
1: I think it's actually extremely revolting that he continues to use this statement uh, by implying that uh, citizens who dare to exercise their constitutional Second Amendment rights – Um, which are written in the Bill of Rights and have been backed up by a number of Supreme Court cases over the years, uh, that somehow they should just lay down their sacred rights for the sake of the government maybe murdering them all with a nuclear weapon or F-15s. It's absolutely disgusting. It is threatening. And it only sows more distrust in people like Joe Biden uh, and Democrats who do want to disarm people so that they are completely helpless against the federal government, and it's also quite rich coming from a president who just handed over Afghanistan to a country full of people with AK-47. Um, so, yep. you know, it, you know, it's, it's not a, a total apples-to-apples to apples comparison, um, but this idea that he's saying that an armed citizenry um, cannot take on a government when he handed over an entire country to the Taliban. Uh, is is quite interesting that he would say that while also uh, implying that the federal government would take orders and murder fellow citizens with uh, the U.S. military on American soil.
0: He also just kind of a weird choice to talk about just kind of the implication of bombing with sophisticated fighter jets, American citizens on Martin Luther King Day in front of that audience, just like. I understand he was trying to ingratiate himself and get applause from a very lefty crowd, but i don 't know it, it just felt hyper political, very strange. you call it revolting, and I think a lot of Americans would feel exactly that same way and also not really understand the dynamics of of what the second amendment's about uh but he he likes this line he uses it somewhat frequently he thinks it's a good one, and I think if anything, it causes people on the other side of the issue to get angry and dig their heels in and double down every time he says something like that. Like, this is like, LOL, you could never beat us anyway. We've got nukes and F-15s. You know, resistance is futile. Give us your guns. That's what people hear. And when they hear that, they want to resist, to use a word that was popular in a different context uh, just a few years ago. Katie, interesting story here in the New York Post today. Headline, ex-top intel official... New Hunter Biden laptop, quote, had to be real, but signed, quote, disinfo letter anyway. I'll read from the start of this piece. A former top intelligence official who signed onto a letter attacking the Post bombshell 2020, their report on Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation. That's what the letter said, has now admitted he knew that, quote, a significant portion of the recovered files had to be real, but doesn't regret dismissing the expose anyway. The guy's name is Douglas Wise, former Defense Intelligence Agency deputy director, one of the 51 erstwhile intelligence brass who issued the public letter on October 19, 2020, just before the election, saying that this was Russian disinformation. And it seems like the argument here, Katie, is setting aside some of the Harry Reid energy, where Harry Reid famously lied about Mitt Romney and his taxes, then it was – Revealed that he had lied after the election, and Harry Reid just basically said, well, you know, whatever, it, uh, it worked, right? Romney lost. So that was the ends justify the means mentality. What this man is saying, Douglas Wise, is, well, you know, we figured that probably a lot of the content on the laptop was real because the Russians, that's how they would operate. They would want a lot of it to be real and then sneak in some fake stuff to cause a bunch of disinformation and to confuse people. That's not really the way that that letter presented the issue, first of all. And secondly, they didn't have evidence that it was Russian disinformation whatsoever, which, of course, as we know now, it wasn't. And here you have one of the signatories doubling down saying, well, it doesn't really matter that a lot of it was real. We, we knew that all along. We have no regrets because it could have been based on some of the hallmarks. It just seems like they will never, ever apologize for what they did, because my guess, Katie, going back to the Harry Reid example, is they feel like they ultimately got what they wanted, which was a political outcome.
1: Yeah, no, they don't care. They they cared about getting uh, Joe Biden elected. They were willing to lie and to abuse uh, the intelligence uh, community and their their former positions to lie about the laptop. You don't have to be a former intelligence official and the federal government and one of the many agencies we have to know that it was a real laptop because the Biden campaign refused to deny that it existed. Hunter Biden's team refused to deny that it existed. They didn't say it was a fake laptop. They they didn't even deny that it was real. Um, It was obvious from the day it came out that it was real. And if you're really someone who believes in protecting the United States, From real Russian disinformation, um, you have completely blown it because now nobody believes a single thing Mm -hmm. the intelligence community says about anything that may be coming out of Russia uh, and the disinformation that they continue to sow inside the country to get us at each other's throats, especially during election season. So they've been willing to compromise the credibility of the state. Um, for the sake of winning elections. And that long term will have very detrimental effects on the country. And it's the reason why we have such an intense political discourse in this country, because if half the country can't trust the intelligence community, because they are openly willing and lying and abusing their positions and their titles and the information they have for the sake of power, that does not end well either.
0: Yeah, it actually kind of reminds me of a certain word, collusion. It sounds a lot like collusion, actually, a word that was thrown around a lot, as it turns out, with no basis that we know from Mueller uh, about Donald Trump. In this case, it was actual collusion among social media, big media, intel community veterans and the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party to suppress that story through any means necessary that's what real collusion looks like. And Whether you think it would have impacted the election outcome or not, it happened, and there's no excuse for it, and yet there is no apology for it from almost anyone who was involved in the collusion, which just drives people up the wall. Katie, a topic that we've been covering a ton at townhall.com and here at Fox News as well, uh, and actually, of course, getting covered quite a bit in the mainstream press as well – we'll talk to Howie Kurtz about that later – is the, this, this scandal, really – with President Biden and these classified documents, multiple troves found in multiple places, unsecured where they shouldn't have been. Uh, just a couple questions for you here. I saw some headlines and some chirons today uh, at CNN about how frustrated Biden is. He's personally frustrated, they're telling CNN, by the way this is playing out, as if he's just sort of like some passive victim bystander watching this all happen to him. Uh, no, no indication of any taking responsibility there whatsoever. Uh, and then I saw today during her press briefing, which got a little spicy at times. Corinne Jean Pierre, who was characteristically inept, uh, she said that the American people don't care about this at all. They care about uh, the economy and other issues. And sure, the American people care about a lot of things, but seems rather rich for Democrats to be saying Americans don't care about this sort of thing, given the, like, 18-alarm fire we got at Mar-a-Lago.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, they they think it should be a, a top issue when a former actual president has classified information that he said he declassified um, at a location that is secured by the Secret Service, but when there is classified information that was kept as vice president who doesn't have the same declassification authority in a garage uh, where his, <laughs> you know, unsavory son, Hunter Biden, had regular access to um, it, is a, it is a big problem and of course they don't want to talk about it. Joe Biden is not a victim in this. and I think there are more serious questions to be asked like was you know Joe Biden, who was a business partner to Hunter Biden, using classified information to make deals with foreign adversaries? That's a question the special counsel should be looking into. Uh, the fact is that this information was just laying around and they continue to say that the search is over. But then they say the search is not over, and they continue to find this stuff, and it's the White House counsel dealing with it, even though it happened when he was vice president and not not during this White White House counsel. And so clearly it was being used for some purpose. Was it for the president to write a book? Was it for other reasons? We don't know, but those are questions that Americans deserve answers to.
0: Yeah, and why are we relying on Biden's lawyers for all of this stuff? Like, we just keep getting updates from them. Like, they're doing all the searching, all the revealing. They are paid to represent his interests. I made this point yesterday. His interests, his presidency, they're protecting him, not necessarily protecting the truth or the national interest, which is why I just feel like it's a dynamic that no longer makes any sense if it ever did. And it appears that the classified material was obviously mishandled, It might have been criminally mishandled, seems fairly clear that it was, at least in some circumstances, and they are politically criminally handling this poorly, I think as well, with the way that they've rolled the whole thing out and just the arrogance of it, the ineptitude, bumbling from one talking point to another, uh, and KJP not making too many friends over the last week or two in that briefing room in a... Room packed mostly with people who want to be her friend and mostly voted for her boss. So uh, it's been an interesting ride so far. I don't think we've heard the end of it. And we might have more documents still lurking out there. Who knows? We're covering it closely here at Fox, also at townhall.com, where I am colleagues in both places. With our guest, Katie Pavlich, Fox News contributor. Katie, always enjoy it. We'll talk again soon, I hope.
1: Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon.
0: Katie Pavlich on The Guy Benson Show. Let's take a quick break and come right back.
2: Fresh Conservative Talk, Guy Benson Show.
5: You're going to talk about big spending Democrats again? Guess what? I reduced the deficit last year, $350 billion. And this year, federal deficit is down $1 trillion plus. Hear me, that's a fact. And there's going to be hundreds of billions reduced over the next decade. But so what? These guys are the fiscally uh, fiscally demented. I think they don't they don't quite get it.
0: Back on the Guy Benson show, and that was President Biden honoring Dr. King's memory. Yesterday, calling Republicans fiscally demented. Just as Dr. King would have wanted, I guess is the argument. Republicans aren't supposed to quote Dr. King. How dare you? You're not allowed to. He doesn't belong to you. He belongs to other people. And then Biden goes and gives that kind of a speech. It's like, look, partisan Democrats just are allowed to do whatever they want. All right? All the good things are theirs. All the bad things are the other side. It's just kind of how they operate. And I feel like we could probably just play that clip for our friend Brian Riedel Although he might just jump off a cliff listening to it because over and over again, Biden tries to take credit for deficit reduction as if he is responsible for the huge, huge one-time COVID emergency spending deluge going away, right? They spent on a bipartisan basis under Trump trillions of dollars during that emergency when our entire economy was shut down basically. And because that was not kept out forever and made permanent because it was temporary, the reduction, with the trajectory still going completely the wrong way, the reduction of the emergency spending, he's trying to claim credit for it like he's reducing the deficit. It's just ridiculous. It's insulting. That's not how the math actually works. Oh, and by the way, he wanted to sign $5 trillion of new spending and build back better. He came a few votes away from doing that. Talk about fiscally demented. My goodness. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show is next. Live from the most powerful
2: city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative,
0: Guy Benson Show. A new hour on the Guy Benson Show underway. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com podcast is free when the show is over every day on demand no charge to you GuyBensonShow.com FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts catch me tonight on special report I'll be on the panel at around six forty five Eastern time on Fox News Channel still to come on the show today Dr Marty McCarry Howie Kurtz as well we'll get to our next guest in a moment but first a Fox News alert. The Dow tumbling today 391 points. It's back below 34,000, closing at 33,910. Dagan McDowell scheduled to be here tomorrow. When I'm in New York, we'll ask her about what's happening with the markets. With us here in studio in D.C. is Bill Melugin, national correspondent here at Fox News, who's doing some anchoring action. Yep. Over the weekend. Based here. Very exciting stuff. Well done. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to uh, switch it up a little bit. And you were in the air-conditioned... With a the, with the suit. Yeah, the, sort of a much uh, calmer yeah. environment than what you're used to down at the border. A little easier to talk when you don't have bugs flying in your face, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and I do recall, I think it was last year, even the year before, Jesse Waters was here on the show, and he had voted that you had the best hair, male category at Fox News, because your hair was performing under duress in the at the elements. border. Yeah, but here in the studio, it's yeah. a dime a dozen there, Bill. yeah I mean, yeah, no you got Deucey, here, right? you got Finn. I mean, yeah. you got some stiff competition. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about something we went through a little bit yesterday with our colleague, Griff Jenkins, who's yep. currently down in Eagle Pass. He got an advanced peak, as did you, at the December numbers mm-hmm. down at the border. Record-breaking on encounters huge number on godaways let's just start there in the scheme of things the context of the numbers that still haven't dropped officially but should be i guess any day yeah. I, I mean we're 17 days
6: into january and they still haven't put out the uh, december numbers remember last time they put the numbers out for november they did it on christmas like christmas eve weekend uh, they've been doing a lot of friday news dumps so what griff and i are hearing from cbp contacts is december is going to end with for the first time in history, over 250,000 migrant encounters at the southern border. The previous record was May of last year, uh, which was about 239,000. So this will be the first time ever we've cracked above a quarter million. And it's the first time ever that, you know, I I believe we're now going to be 10 months in a row of months over 200,000 migrant encounters. Just absolutely stunning numbers. It'll be the highest number in U.S. history.
0: What the Biden team will say is, yes, December was bad, but that's a backward-looking number. Let's talk about the present. January is getting a lot better. The president has boldly led—this is how they would frame it—with this new policy, with the, the mass parole for 30000 a month from certain nationalities. And look, it's working because the numbers are down. Is there some truth to that? When will we really get a sense of whether the new policy is making any dent at all.
6: It is true that the January numbers are down. They're down significantly from what we were seeing in December, according to my CBP sources. Now, why that is, we're going to have to take a wait-and-see approach. Is it possible that uh, some of these Cubans, Nicaraguans, Haitians, Venezuelans are now a little spooked from crossing the border uh, because of this new policy? It's possible, but um, that really only affects the folks who are already in transit. So you would think there would already be like a – there would be an artificial drop in the numbers because the people who already left their home countries and are now kind of caught in the middle. They can't apply on the app and fly into the country. They're already in transit being told they're going to be turned back. So what's going to happen with those people? They'll likely cross as gotaways. They're going to, inv- they're going to evade, and uh, those numbers likely won't be reported. Now, the other thing is um, January is typically always an extremely slow month at the border. I take you back to January 2022. The numbers were very low and people started saying, oh, well, maybe the border crisis is finally over. We finally got this under control. We all know what happened in 2022. We went on to have the the, the highest year on record. So, yes, the numbers are lower after that announcement, but we're going to have to wait and see once we get – the springtime is really the gauge of what we're going to find out uh, is going to happen for the rest of the year.
0: What are you hearing from your contacts about the president's visit to El Paso? Because, I mean, he really – hadn't ever been down there in his entire career. The 2008 in an SUV driving near it, it, to me, doesn't count. This was his first border visit. He was pressured into it from really his own party eventually because he was willing to ignore Republicans, ignore certain media outlets that were actually covering it for a while. He went down there. I was glad that he did just because I'd been saying he should go. He went, but I was worried that it would be so stage-managed to be worthless. And it seems like, unfortunately— it was more than anything from my perspective a dog and pony show he did meet with some cbp folks down there who were they did he actually get a little dose of truth from anyone based on what you know so
6: if we're calling a spade a spade it look it was a it was a sanitized photo op he met with cbp officers at the port of entry to start the chaos isn't happening at the port of entry The the chaos is happening in between the ports of entry where all the illegal crossings are. The videos we're showing every day of hundreds, thousands of people crossing in the river. So he didn't go see that. He then goes to a migrant assistance shelter slash center run by El Paso County where he asks him, he goes, how many many migrants do you guys get a day? Uh, About three or four hundred, sometimes a thousand on a heavy day. There wasn't a single migrant there that day.
0: Was that just a, a post Christmas miracle? It was a, a strange coincidence. It was a
6: very strange coincidence. Not a single migrant there that day. He didn't go down to where the camps are in downtown El Paso, where people are sleeping on the streets. He didn't go to the Central Processing Center, which you might remember last month that video. It's the Border Patrol facility that was completely over capacity. Like, 450 times what what it should be Uh, he didn't go down to the part of the border wall where people are crossing he didn't go down to the river he didn't go where the national guard for texas has had to set up concertina wire and humvees he essentially just got a, a sanitized bubble wrapped look at a bridge the port of entry there and then an el paso county migrant center where there were no migrants now to mayor adams credit from new york city he went down there. Yeah, that's my next question. Yeah, go, go for it.
0: No, so I mean he, he didn't do the whole totally sanitized thing, and a lot of it just strikes me as self-interest because he's now saying you – know, they went from, oh, you know, the Statue of Liberty is weeping because Donald Trump is doing whatever. And now he's like, hang on. Give us your huddled masses, but we've had more than enough. Thank you very much. We're full here. So he went down there. He doesn't want to take more of this responsibility on for himself, but he's at least kind of talking about it in a realistic way now. Having seen it now, whether some of that's politics and cynical, I don't disagree, but at least he's saying these things. There's some connection to reality.
6: I've been shocked by some of the things he's saying. He tweeted, I think it was two days ago, that the border is a national crisis. Correct. Which is something we hadn't heard from him before. And I'm looking at a couple of tweets from one in June, June of 2021. Remember, he used to always be tweeting about how they're a sanctuary city. They're mm. proud of it. He posted in June of 2021, New York City is and always has been a city of immigrants. We are a destination for diversity, yada, yada, yada. Then uh, – <laughs> It's like uh, sort of like how it started, well, how it's going. Here, here's how it's going, uh, uh, a headline from Reuters. New York mayor says – No room in his city for migrants. So welcome, everybody. We're a sanctuary city. Now he's saying we got no room. It's not fair. It's a national crisis, and we need help. And busloads of migrants over and over and over from Texas, maybe a little bit of a wake-up call.
0: The proposition that I put forward yesterday with Griff, and I think he generally agreed this is just me, my editorial opinion, looking at what the White House has called now for months a stunt, of Republican governors, although it's not just Republican governors, it's the El Paso government, Democrat-led. We got some of this from Colorado and the Democratic governor there. But this was pioneered by the Republicans, particularly Mm -hmm. Greg Abbott in Texas, and Democrats in the media went nuts. When Ron DeSantis flew the plane up to Martha's Vineyard, it was like next-level meltdown in the media. But given what we're seeing from the pressure that was put on Biden, what we're hearing in these quotes from Uh, Mayor Adams, it's hard to look at what the Republicans have done, exporting part of the problem Mm -hmm. to these sanctuary jurisdictions, to look at that as anything other than a pretty big success, at least PR-wise so far.
6: Uh, Look, they, (laughs) they were political stunts. But they were highly effective political stunts because they specifically said the whole reason they were doing this is to draw attention to it. They said the media is going to have to cover it if we start dropping busloads off to New York City, these urban cities that are far away from the border and don't understand what happens down there. Well, if you're not going to come to the border, we're going to bring the border to you. And And that's exactly what they did. And just look at how public perception of it has changed since that started. You got Eric Adams down at the border – calling it a national crisis, saying we need federal help. Uh, you've got the media, the national media, who's now covering the border within the last month or so when it used to essentially just be Fox News for a year and a half straight. I don't know if, if you'd agree, but it feels like the tone on the border has changed in terms of how it's being covered across the country now.
0: Yeah, and it's not just a Fox story or a Republican obsession. It was neither of those things, in my opinion, mm. on the merits. That's yeah. the way it was treated by the White House. And even over Christmas, I was off the air taking some time off, but I might've sneaked onto Twitter from time to time. And people were very angry because they were dropping a busload or two of migrants at, the vice president's mansion in D.C., and it was cold. Everyone said, oh, this this is so evil. This is so rotten. These fake Christians in Texas are doing this. How could they? Mm -hmm. None of these people cared at all that there were people freezing in the streets of El Paso. It was bringing them to the little bubble Mm -hmm. and forcing them to look at the problem Mm -hmm. that caused them to, on some level, grapple with it. Otherwise, out of sight, out of mind— Quickly, Bill, last word to you.
6: As long as it stays in Texas, they didn't say anything about it. They didn't care about it. It's only when it's dropped right on their doorstep and they got to look it in the eye, look it in the eye personally, that they started having a problem with it.
0: Bill Malugin is here in D.C. for a while, anchoring again this coming weekend on Fox News Channel. Then back to the border yep. on that beat that he's covered so faithfully for well over a year. Bill Malugin, national correspondent at Fox News. It's good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's step aside and come back. Still to come this hour, Dr. Marty McCarry. On some COVID lies and distortions they are still happening, coming up shortly on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. Thank you for listening. So we've discussed on a few different occasions the George Santos saga on Capitol Hill. And I have not really had much to say in the defense of George Santos. I've been quite critical of him. I have made the aboutist point regarding all the many lies and fabrications and embellishments that other politicians have gotten away with. In fact, has sort of helped them build their own quirky little brand. Like Joe Biden, who just lied and fabricated and plagiarized his way to the very top. So in essence, almost like an inspirational story for someone like George Santos, shows that you too can reach the pinnacle of your career if you just lie hard enough. And frankly, if you have the right political friends in the media, that's a big difference perhaps between Biden and Santos or Elizabeth Warren and Richard Blumenthal and Santos. That also doesn't mean that I'm like a fan of Santos or excusing what he did which I think is inexcusable. I've made that point repeatedly. I wouldn't vote for him in a primary or a general moving forward because of just the scope of the mendacity, the deceit. It just seems pathological. But at times, little elements of it are funny, I have to admit. Like, my favorite lie of his, if I had to pick one, is this uh, volleyball lie. He claimed that he was like the star... Of the Baruch College volleyball team, leading them to a championship, with a lot of very specific details in this story, all of which are false because he didn't go to Baruch College. I mean, it's just all made up. But he tells it so convincingly, which is kind of creepy. In retrospect, also kind of funny. Here he is because he was a candidate not just this year when he won. He lost narrowly in 2020. The Democrats had two different cycles to ferret out some of this totally false information in his biography. They could have done it in either of the cycles they ran against him. I guess they never bothered to look, kicking themselves for that. But in 2020, last time he was running, he did an interview on WABC Radio in New York and gave some very interesting color commentary about his volleyball war stories. Back from his days as a star and a champion at Peru College, cut 26.
7: I actually went to school on a, on a volleyball scholarship. And, you did. And um, I did. Yeah. Um, when I was in Baruch, we were the number one volleyball. Did you graduate team, from Baruch? Uh,
0: did you graduate from there? Yeah. So did I. I did. I did. So did I. Oh,
7: very cool. So, great school. Great institution. Very yes. liberal, but very good. Very good professors who don't show their bias, which is which is very uh, interesting. But that's a whole other conversation. But it's funny that we went to fi- we went to, to play against Harvard, Yale. And we slay them.
1: <laughs> we slay them. We were champions across the entire
7: Northeast Corridor. Every school that came up against us, they were shaking at the time. And it's funny, I was the smallest guy and I'm two I look, I sacrificed both my knees and got very nice knee replacements uh, knee replacements from oh, wow. HSS playing volleyball. That's how serious I took the game.
0: Mm, really, George. Took it so seriously he had to get both knees replaced from his exploits at Baruch College on their volleyball team as the star of the championship squad. He also says the professors at Baruch didn't show their bias politically, which is interesting. And in a sense, that's true. They probably didn't show their bias to him because they didn't show anything to him because he didn't go there. Anyway, it's just like the detail of the untruths is really something to behold. Joe Biden's got to be looking down on that being like, man, he's good. He got caught, but he's good. Of course, Biden got caught over and over and over again. It didn't matter. He just kept getting elected over and over again to the Senate, and then he got a promotion to vice president. And then the people were like, yeah, let's make him president. Meanwhile, I bring this up because of a juxtaposition story that was brought to my attention by our friend Jason Rance at KTTH in Seattle, our affiliate out there. Jason published this at MyNorthwest.com. Listen to this. Clyde Shavers, if I'm saying his name right, Clyde Shavers lied about his military service. Washington Democrats rewarded him with a seat on a veterans committee in the House. Shavers, a Democrat representing the 10th Legislative District, narrowly defeated the Republican incumbent state senator after news broke that he fabricated his military history. On his campaign website, Shavers had claimed to have served, quote, for more than eight years as a nuclear submarine officer and public affairs officer with tours the Middle East and Southeast Asia. But he hadn't served even eight minutes on a nuclear submarine. The Democrats' father, who outed the deceit in a public letter, said his son only passed one of the three courses required to qualify as a nuclear submarine officer. After completing the first course, he transitioned to a public affairs role. But the lie was outed too late in the campaign, allowing the first-time candidate to eke out a victory. Through the controversy, Craven, Washington State Democrats, backed Shavers. They wanted the seat. And now they're trolling voters by seating him on a House committee involving veterans. Rantz says he should have turned this down, but when you lie about your service, you have no shame. And you get elected and reelected as a U.S. senator in Connecticut if you're Richard Blumenthal. So this guy is off to a very promising career, lying about his military service, less egregious than Blumenthal. It's still a lie. It's very bad. But as a Democrat in a blue state, I would say that Clyde Shavers probably has a pretty bright future ahead of him in that party, in that place. Perhaps unlike George Santos in D.C., where there are cameras and microphones chasing him everywhere he goes. The treatment is just a little bit disparate, if you hadn't noticed. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Please stay tuned.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Glad to have you here on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is on demand, totally free each and every day. Joining me now is Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins, author of the book The Price We Pay What Broke American Health Care. And, doctor, welcome back. Good to be with you, Guy. I have seen in the last couple days some online articles, some given the imprimatur of some very well-known and prestigious organizations regarding COVID that have just stopped me in my tracks. For example, there was an article at Henry Ford Medicine talking about COVID, and one of the claims that was made – this was in the fall, and I guess some people are just addressing it now – but this was recently published – One of the claims was this, quote, school was the biggest source of COVID-19 transmission. That's an actual quote from this article, which, correct me if I'm wrong, doctor, but that is absolutely incorrect. School was nowhere near the biggest public source of COVID-19 transmission, and there were a number of studies that showed, even as far back as 2020, that kids and teachers were less likely to contract COVID in a school setting than they were in the community writ large. I just don't know how anyone in late 2022, early 2023, is publishing a line like
4: that.
8: (laughs) Well, they're sticking to their guns. You know, this was their position. And so they've been trying to rationalize it since they took that stand to close schools. But the evidence is abundantly clear really from the European experience. The schools were open, free, and clear the entire time with no masks in many, many parts of Europe. And we have data on transmission there. We have randomized control studies. Uh, We've got other examples of solid data now. The the schools were not the source of transmission. As a matter of fact, if a kid is not in school, there's some uh, out of school is a place they're more likely to get it and we still don't even know if any healthy child has ever died of COVID, the CDC can't tell you. So there's been many mistakes of the pandemic, ignoring natural immunity, downplaying vaccine complications, um, the dosing interval, but school closures by far has been the greatest catastrophe of these COVID policies and it's amazing how quiet the academic community is. I mean people have a PhD in child development in academia, and this entire community was just sat it out. They decided to have no comment and ignore the data, and uh, there's no apology.
0: Or they were actively wrong and pushing for school closures. And I guess it's part of this herd mentality groupthink where they didn't want to be lumped in with the anti-science people, even if it meant actually adhering to the science, the actual science, and preventing the infliction of lots of harm on lots of children for no good, justifiable reason based on the data. And that brings me to a piece that came out today. This was published on the website of the American Medical Association. The headline of this piece is why kids are, quote, great little vectors for COVID-19. And one of the lines in this piece, I'm just going to read directly. This is verbatim, quote, looking back. Closing schools was probably an effective way of cutting SARS-CoV-2 transmission prior to the widespread availability of safe and effective vaccines. And they're quoting some expert uh, who is saying that school closures was an effective method of cutting transmission of COVID, which, again, is the opposite of the truth. It had lots of knock-on effects that were extremely bad for kids without having the intended effect that they're talking about. This is not something that was written in April of 2020 and was wrong. This is a retrospective published today saying, looking back, school closures were effective. A justification, again, published on the website of the American Medical Association. Doctor, I mean, there are people who no longer trust the medical experts and the quote-unquote science because they feel like it's a politicized cult. And when you see stuff like this, it's kind of hard to argue with them to some extent.
8: (laughs) Well, first of all, almost every kid in the United States has gotten COVID, so I don't see how the school closures did anything. Um, There is a very strong activist mentality at the leadership of these medical associations, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association Association. I mean these are not politically neutral groups that, as they used to be in the past. The medical establishment is a small group of people. They are it's an oligarchy. They're very entwined. It's connected with the deans and the criteria for promotion at universities. There's a lot of academic bullying if you're not on board with the full covid covidian mentality. And the New England Journal of Medicine, our top journal, essentially endorsed Joe Biden for president in a famous article. So these are now activist organizations, and I think they're being exposed. And that's why a lot of doctors are saying, I'm not going to pay them a 1000 dollars a year in membership fees. They've sort of lost their mission.
0: Speaking of that, there is another skirmish in the COVID war still going on. Again, this feels like a blast from the past, but it is today, the 17th of January, 2023, the Biden administration is in federal court arguing that they should have the authority to reinstate through the CDC a forced mask mandate on airplanes for travelers. Now, for those of us who travel a lot, and I travel a fair amount, we've been making this choice for ourselves for the better part of a year. And a lot of people have opted against wearing the masks. This has coincided with surges in COVID and ebbs in COVID, people making this decision for themselves. It's an active court case. The Biden administration in federal court today saying we want to reimpose or at least have the power to reimpose this mandate now. I mean, here we are in early 2023, and I was reading an article about it. And let me quote from it. It says proponents of a transportation mask mandate, including, wait for it, the American Medical Association, state that a mask requirement on transportation is a reasonable way to curb the spread of covid-19. They also argue that the CDC could end the mandate in the future, given the right circumstances. Well, there they are again, doctor, the American Medical Association saying, oh, yes, we are putting our power, our prestige behind the argument. That it is reasonable and good to force people who are traveling to wear masks, even though even David Leonhardt wrote a big piece months and months and months ago about how mask mandates don't work. It's the AMA saying this is where we come down. Some people will take that as gospel, but fewer and fewer people are because of what you were just talking about. What's happening at the American Medical Association? Like, I've become almost reflexively suspicious of anything that they say now. Well, me
8: too. I've been to six or seven major doctors conferences uh over the last year and none of the doctors are wearing masks with the exception of maybe less than 2% and you know maybe they have a good reason to be wearing it but if the doctors are not wearing masks at their social gatherings and medical conferences what do they know that the public doesn't know because we have a public policy that is driven by grandstanding and the political back and forth and sort of retaliation points of view. If the CDC, instead of spending all their time and energy fighting in court, the ability to mandate masks, were to instead take 1% of that energy and fund a randomized controlled trial, the gold standard in science for evidence, On masks, we would end this debate overnight. We don't have that. We have studies very close to that gold standard that show no benefit to the mask. We know that a high-quality mask can reduce transmission, but it also has downsides. You can't just Mm -hmm. cover a kid's face for two years and expect them to have no speech or learning loss. Uh, And depression. People are more sad when they don't see smiles and the visual cues of expressions on other faces. So uh, my my bigger issue, guy, is with all of these COVID controversies. Dr. Fauci and the CDC could have ended them overnight by funding funding randomized control trials that give us the definitive answer. But rather than funding any studies on masks <clears throat> or um, vaccines in children or boosters in young people or Paxlovid in vaccinated Americans or anything like that, what they chose to do is to rule by dogma. And that's what we're living with, is this sort of rule by opinion from on high, and everybody needs to fall in place. Show us the data.
0: I saw earlier today a clip circulating. This is from CNN, and it comes from Dr. Liana Wen. She was on their morning show, and she said something that caused a backlash. It's actually very interesting to see the backlash of – Who is angry over what? She said it this week. And the hardcore COVID restrictionists, and to some extent that is a cult, they were mad because she was, in their mind, downplaying the risk of COVID, which you should never, ever do under any circumstances, even if you're absolutely scientifically and medically justified in doing so and uh, rooted completely in the facts. Then you have other people who have been skeptics of that mentality saying, "Okay, thanks, doctor. Uh, It took you long enough to get to this obviously correct point that some people have been making now for years. Here's what she said about the counting of COVID deaths, COVID hospitalizations as well. She wrote a piece about it a few days ago at The Washington Post. Cut 25
1: there is a way for us to look at death certificates and also to look at the medical records of individuals prior to their death. And I think this needs to be separated into three categories. One is the the COVID as a direct contributor, the primary cause of death. The second is, could it be a secondary contributing cause? So for example, somebody with kidney disease, COVID then pushes them over the edge to have kidney failure. That's COVID as a contributing cause. And then the third is COVID as an incidental finding. So somebody coming in with a gunshot wound or a heart attack, and they happen to test positive. I think that we need to separate out and look at the percentages of each. That percentage would have shifted over time as well. In the beginning, probably a lot more people were dying with the primary cause of COVID. That probably has shifted.
0: All right, so this is the with versus of debate that was verboten for a while. And you can say there's an important distinction between someone dying primarily of COVID versus someone dying or going to the hospital who happened to have covid but they were there for other reasons or they died for other reasons. You can do all that without downplaying the severity of COVID and saying we should be vigilant and making other sound recommendations. But it seems like that was all thrown out the window. You had to be as dire as possible all the time for a very long time. And again, I welcome this sort of nuance, but this sort of nuance was being advocated by people like you long ago, and a lot of people just didn't want to hear it.
8: Well, that's exactly right. We have had a broken compass guiding our COVID policy, and as you know, myself and several others have been saying this until we're blue in the face now for two years, and as you've got to distinguish incidental COVID versus truly dying from COVID, especially in children. When you're talking about closing you know, the livelihoods of 50 million children, wouldn't you want to have good data? And so we've been saying this for a long time, but now that Lena Nguyen is saying it in the Washington Post, people are turning on her because there's this mentality that we just have to keep the fear on and going as long and as hard as possible. There's a moral good to doing that. It keeps people on their guard. That's the basis for Biden renewing the public health emergency last week. If there's a public health emergency in America today, Guy, they got the wrong virus. I mean, it, it would be maybe heart attacks and uh, cancer that is a cause of a public health emergency, but not COVID. COVID is at a low baseline rate, but because of the overinflated numbers from overcounting all COVID deaths, whether there's a positive test as a COVID death, we have had a broken compass. And when we talk to people and say, look, at what point, are we going to meet back in person? You know, we have a faculty meeting tomorrow night at Johns Hopkins, all by Zoom. We're not talking as doctors <laughs> in the hospital. Why, why are we remote? Why is the FDA working remotely? They've got 15, 18,000 employees at the FDA. They are still working remotely. Why? And they'll point to these numbers and they're overcounting the COVID deaths because they're counting those that just happen to test positive.
0: Yeah, it also seems like the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans aren't living like that and haven't for quite some time. It's just a few enclaves, very elite enclaves, part of this medical bureaucracy and academia. They're like the last holdouts. it feels like. And yet they are some of the people still guiding the policy and making the decisions for other people, which I think is what is frightening and frustrating to so many others. Doctor, there's so much I want to get to on COVID vaccines and some of the theories out there about were they really worth it or too dangerous. We don't have time to get to that today. I hope you'll come back very soon on that topic and more. Dr. Marty McCarry, our guest, he's a professor at Johns Hopkins, he's a surgeon, and he's a Fox News contributor. Doctor, always enjoy it. Thank you. Great to be with you, Guy. Thanks. Let's take a quick break. Let's come right back on The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: It's The Guy Benson Show. A quick factor follow up on a story that we brought you yesterday, right here in Washington, D.C. The city council was going to vote today on whether or not to override the veto of Mayor Bowser on this totally insane dangerous so-called criminal justice reform package that as the washington post reported is quote a bill that decreases punishments for violent crimes such as carjackings home invasion burglaries robberies and even homicides the bill eliminates life sentences completely and gets rid of mandatory minimums for every crime but first degree murder the maximum penalty i read this yesterday too the maximum penalty For someone convicted of a violent felony while using a gun to commit more violence will drop to four years from 15. You'd go behind bars, maximum 15 years for these types of crimes in the past. Thanks to this equity-focused, quote-unquote, progress, that number will be down to four years. This is just a bouquet to violent criminals. That will incentivize more crime that will send a message to lawbreakers and law abiders and law enforcement that the law matters less and less, and dangerous, violent people who actually get caught and prosecuted, even to the fullest extent of the law, they'll be back on the street very soon thereafter thanks to this alleged progress. The Washington Post editorial board was begging the city council not to do this. The mayor vetoed, saying, please don't do this. Let's make a few adjustments. Let's make this less destructive. Well, they held a vote earlier today, and the vote was not close. By a 12-to-1 margin, the city council has overridden the veto, and this will become law in Washington, D.C. It's nuts. But apropos of our previous conversation, the last segment with Dr. McCary, you'll be very happy to know – that the city council members were all masked up when they made this vote. They cast their votes in a huge giveaway to violent criminals wearing masks due to COVID. Because of safety, of course. Don't you feel safer? The Guy Benson Show returns with our final hour coming up next. You don't want to miss Howie Kurtz straight ahead. Just after 5 p.m. on the East Coast, it's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, our online home. Lots of content there. You can also catch our podcast for free, on demand, every day. No charge at all. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on social media, if you are so inclined, at Guy Benson Show twitter and instagram it's the same handle my personal handle on those two platforms is at guy p benson this hour sponsored by the finnish long drink the most popular alcoholic beverage in finland taking america by storm growing in popularity by the day we're big fans here thelongdrink.com to find out where they're sold near you as they expand always drink responsibly 21 plus only thelongdrink.com catch me tonight on special report i'm on the panel It's Brett Baer with the night off, Mike Emanuel in the seat this evening, looking forward to having all sorts of analysis and conversations about the news of the day. With us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel. That's every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern. He's got his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, at foxnewspodcast.com. You can follow him, as I do, on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. And, Howie, it is great to have you here, as always.
7: Great to be back, Guy.
0: Let's talk about the Biden papers controversy. I saw a graphic on one of our competitors. I think it was CNN earlier. It's been cropping up throughout the day about how, according to sources inside the White House, President Biden is personally frustrated by the way this saga is playing out. And I'm not really sure how much of a scoop that is. It sounds like damage control, like the president is some sort of innocent bystander watching all of these things happen to him, causing frustration. Just the passivity of that framing to me, I don't know, doesn't really strike me as a news story. That strikes me as kind of silly spin.
7: Well, you know, Biden has no one to blame but himself for several reasons. One is he allowed the uh, documents mess to happen in the first place. Secondly, they've handled it as badly as they could possibly handle it. I mean, dribs and drabs and uh, sitting on it since early November. And then finally, he's left this vacuum because since Peter Ducey of our network uh, asked him the question, and Biden uh, kind of unsteadily read a uh, statement about what documents have been found and not found as opposed to kind of looking into the camera, Five days have gone by, complete radio silence. Today he just sat there with the uh, Dutch prime minister as reporters were shouting questions. I mean, there's nothing stopping him from defending himself. I would couple that with an apology for the sloppiness, at the very least, about these VP uh, documents. Uh, and instead, it looks almost like I mean, he's going about his duties as president, but he doesn't want to talk to the press because he doesn't want to answer these questions.
0: Right. He's just so frustrated, Howie. That's what they want us to know Like someone else did this to him. And isn't that frustrating? I just don't think that flies, given who ultimately is responsible for the handling of that material. And it's not like it showed up in some of his underlings' homes. It wasn't his chief of staff who had these documents stuffed into a drawer in some garage somewhere. It's his house, various rooms in his house, a closet in his office. It comes down to him. So the frustration, if it exists, should be directed inward, not just sort of vaguely outward to the people, I guess, by implication, who are victimizing him in his mind. And on a related note, Howie, the coverage of this scandal, it's taken a bit of a turn in recent days when the whole Trump angle was getting less and less tenable. But you're still seeing a lot of it cropping up, and especially in the early days after that first batch of documents was found, including top-secret information – It seemed like the memo went out to almost everyone in the news media that the appropriate and important way to cover Biden's apparent malfeasance was to put together bullet points in two different columns, explaining the difference between what Biden did and what Trump did when it comes to classified information, and make sure everyone understood how much worse Trump was. And whether you agree with that analysis or not, I think Trump was worse than Biden on this general area in this realm, although Biden's gotten worse and worse as the days have passed. I think they're both less culpable than Hillary Clinton by a country mile for various reasons that I've explained. But I just feel like there's such thing as context. And then there's rapid response, almost like oppo research damage control. And it just seems like a lot of the news media and journalists went racing into damage control mode on behalf of Biden
7: that that was the initial response by most of the mainstream media nothing to see here this is just a little sloppiness didn't really amount to anything Trump is so much worse can't lose sight of the fact that Trump is so much worse and he never gave up the documents and all of that but then there started to be a shift and now the press is angry I mean if you watched I played a lot of this down on media buzz and see CBS's Ed O'Keefe and NBC's Kristen Welker and Fox's Peter Doocy uh, hammering Karine Jean-Pierre who was sent out there with nothing to say just ongoing investigation can't comment blah, 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 um, they're really pissed off. And the reason is they think they've been hosed. They think they've been right. had. Uh, they don't understand why this wasn't revealed two months ago, a few days before the midterms. Uh, they're getting stonewalled on basic questions. And I think, the, I think that's the source of Biden's frustration. He is generally accustomed to gentle treatment by the media. And here I think this is – I don't think this is just going to be a two-, three-day story. I mean, of course, he's turning it into a ten-day story because he's not addressing it. But I do think there's some genuine – Uh, anger and outrage in the media that we, uh, for the first time in the Biden presidency, they are really ticked off.
0: Well, I think because, at least in some cases, they're mad that they feel like chumps, and they feel like they've been exposed as hacks because they went straight to their battle stations, as we said, and coughed up and regurgitated all of these talking points about how much worse Trump was. They, I think, wrongly assumed that the Biden people had a handle on this, had put a lid on it, everything that was going to come out finally had come out because they had months to prepare. And then more of this drip, drip, drip emerged and clearly the efforts that they had engaged in on behalf of their preferred party looked ridiculous and was exposed as ridiculous as such within a matter of days. I think that's part of the reason they were so ticked off. Like it was a betrayal. Like, hey, you're making us look bad. We're trying to help you. And now we're going to sort of Clap back and get more serious, and it has been a little bit more in terms of the tone in that room, a little bit closer to what Republican press secretaries get accustomed to on a daily basis. That's at least my general sense of it.
7: That's a great word, chumps. You don't hear that that word that much anymore. Um, And I think it's true. I I think it's true. And and we we actually did a count. uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, who's sort of the sacrificial lamb here, and I think she's handled it poorly, but they haven't given her anything to work with whatsoever. They ought to have sent out one of the lawyers to actually answer some questions. That's what Bill Clinton did during his scandals, and to keep it away from the regular press briefings. But in any event, um, Karine Jean-Pierre 13 times, this is on the the Thursday briefing, said ongoing process, meaning... Justice Department's investigating so we can't comment. By the way, that's both. Anybody, the president of the United States can go out there. He can defend himself. He should apologize for mishandling it. I think that would be a good idea for Biden politically. Secondly, 18 times she said, I would refer you to the White House Counsel's office or I would refer you to uh, DOJ. Neither of which is are commenting, so it's basically just a
0: dodge. Yep, and then she also said that the search for additional documents had been completed, and then over the weekend, more documents Had emerged, And at least they announced that they had found even more. So I think generally she might be a very lovely person. I think she is not good at this job in general. I think she has been particularly bad in her performance relating to this controversy, but also they're giving her nothing to work with. So it's like bad on top of bad with just a bag of emptiness to deal with. Uh, So it's not a great look. I know she was getting shelled today again and just was hiding behind these referrals to other people. We're not going to comment. And I guess maybe they feel like they can no-comment this thing until it's gone. I'm just not sure if that's going to work out for them because of what we were just talking about, some of the uh, the blood in the water, some of the frustration, the anger among certain journalists who feel like they were had in all of this. I want to shift to something that we played yesterday here on the show, Howie. It was a soundbite, part of an exchange on Sunday on Meet the Press between Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin And the anchor, the moderator, they call him, of Meet the Press, Chuck Todd. And I've heard a number of Republicans saying through the years that Chuck Todd is not really worth engaging with. You've got to pick and choose who you're going to show up with on their show, what platforms you're willing to legitimize. Obviously, Meet the Press has a very long and serious reputation. I don't have quite the hostility toward Chuck Todd that some other people do. But in the back and forth with Ron Johnson, it kind of got personal. The other day, and it was talking about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and in various investigations. Here's just part of what it sounded like in Cut 27.
4: I'm concerned about getting the truth. I don't target individuals. Target individuals. <laughs> you target You're truth. targeting Hunter Biden. My, my, my concern, cons- my- Senator. <laughs> You're targeting an Chuck, individual. Chuck, my, my concern, my, you know, Chuck. You know, par- part of the problem, and, and this is pretty obvious to anybody watching this, is you don't invite me on to interview me. You. Invite me on to argue with me. You know, I'm just trying to lay out the facts that certainly Senator Grass and I uncovered. They were suppressed. They were censored. They interfered in the 2020 election. Conservatives understand that. Unfortunately, liberals in the media don't, and that's part of the things that uh, part part of the reasons our politics are inflamed is we do not have an unbiased. Uh, media, we don't. It's unfortunate. I'm all for free press. Well, it needs Senator, to be more unbiased. Senator, There's look, misinformation this is, look, go on both partisan. sides. But the Senator, censorship and Senator, look, we're trying to Primaries do issues here. partisan cable.
0: Look, you can go back on your partisan cable cocoon and talk about media bias all you want. I understand it's part of your identity. All right, Howie. So in his first response, there that you heard to Senator Johnson in that clip, Todd is just laughing at what Johnson is saying, and then. Senator Johnson says, you don't invite me on this show to interview me. You invite me on to argue with me. It's sort of hard to disagree based on that back and forth. And then at the very end, Todd wants to get the last word in, and he says, well, you can go back on your partisan cable cocoon. I think he's talking about Fox there. And then sort of snidely snarks that complaining about media bias is, quote, part of your identity as opposed to grappling with the reality of media bias, Howie. I just wonder, listening to that, was that – a professional performance by Chuck Todd?
7: Way too personal. It was way too mocking. And I've watched it like three times, and I think that uh, it, it did send a signal that basically Chuck Todd was there to... Um, either belittle or just simply denigrate Ron Johnson. By the way, targeting Hunter Biden, he's under federal investigation. Right. Uh, so it's not like the craziest thing ever. And secondly, the comeback about, I'll go back to your partisan media cocoon, uh, Just he, he just seemed condescending and unfair and not really willing to listen. There's a lot of talking over Senator Johnson, and I just don't think it was a good performance on any level.
0: Lastly, Howie Kurtz, interesting little... Dribbs and drabs emerging about the potential future of CNN. Obviously, that's a network that has gone through a lot of upheaval. They've had a lot of trouble in terms of their ratings after President Trump left office. They were a resistance network. That was – speaking of identity, that was their identity really for four years plus. Then the bogeyman, the punching bag, isn't president anymore And a lot of their ratings collapsed because I think some folks would go back to the real article, MSNBC, if they want left-wing cable. CNN was sort of in this identity crisis. Now they have new management. A lot of people have been let go. There are rumors that more people might not be coming back to CNN. They're shaking up the lineup. And then this report from Semaphore that the new leader at CNN, Chris Licht, is looking at for prime time to try to really do something in prime time because their numbers are – especially atrocious during what should be some major Boku hours in terms of viewership, they might bring in someone with a comedy background, a political comedy background, to do a nightly show. Some of the names, at least, that were quoted or floated in that piece were Bill Maher, Jon Stewart, Trevor Noah, who's no longer at The Daily Show. Of course, Jon Stewart isn't either. He's got his podcast going on. Bill Maher has his perch over at HBO. That's once a week. I'm not sure if Bill Maher would want the gig. Uh, It could be interesting. I'm not sure he wants the grind of an hour every single day. Some of these other guys, I mean, if they're looking to pivot back to news and being down the middle and in sort of the center of the political universe, which is what they're saying they want, I'm not sure that's Trevor Noah or Jon Stewart. I just wonder what you think. Is this a trial balloon Does this align with what they've stated publicly? I just found it interesting.
7: Well, I'm not surprised that Chris Lick, who came to CNN from the Stephen Colbert show, which he took to number right. one, thinks comedy might be the answer because because he's, he's made such an emphasis on being down the middle. He can't put anybody on at 9 p.m. who's going to be you know uh, a, a raving liberal or even a raving conservative. So I could see a bit of counter-programming. It makes sense. What I don't, what doesn't make sense is most of these people are not available. He's not going to get Bill Maher, and and, and John Stewart is under contract to Apple TV. So I don't see the point of floating it. Uh, unless you're trying to kind of put pressure on people, uh, I'm sure they've also looked at uh, Greg Gutfeld's ratings and think, well, okay, comedy with a large, you know, uh, political component could maybe work. It's, you know, it's it, they're throwing things against the wall because the ratings are so bad. Uh, I, I would check it out if they put on somebody who's really funny, but again, you, Trevor Noah's ratings were atrocious at The Daily Show. I mean, three, four hundred thousand. So I don't think he's going to be the savior.
0: And is it the same type of quote-unquote political comedy that is basically prevalent everywhere except Gutfeld up and down the dial where it's just Democratic operative left-wing commentary with a few punchlines and, you know, a laughter sign? That's the obvious risk, and CNN needs to figure out exactly where they're going. Is this identity crisis ongoing? It seems like it might be. We've got to leave it there. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel. Howie, always appreciate it.
7: Look forward to it. Thanks, Guy.
0: It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back after this.
7: Fresh conservative
2: talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: Happy hour and a very happy day, if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, as the first weekend of the NFL playoffs is now complete with the Cowboys going down to Tampa. And as expected, certainly in my mind, taking care of the Buccaneers, and it really wasn't close. There were some garbage time points put up on the board by the Buccaneers, but the game was over pretty early, despite all those missed extra points by the kicker. I don't think I've ever seen that before. He missed four of them. That's crazy. But the Cowboys cruised to victory over the Bucs, and Tom Brady looked awfully human in that game. I don't necessarily want to say totally over the hill, But the Tom Brady magic was not forthcoming. And look, he's getting older and older. The guy's proven everything he would ever need to in the earlier parts of his career, including in Tampa. But you have to wonder, is he maybe finally reaching the end of the road here? I know he led the team to the playoffs, but with a sub-500 record. In the playoffs, it just was not an inspiring performance at all. And I guess people are asking, number one, was it worth coming back? and ticking off his wife and maybe triggering the divorce and all of that to have this kind of season. And then what might be next for him? Dan, would you bet he comes back? I think he's probably still too addicted to walk away.
5: Yeah, I think he's definitely coming back. To the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I don't know. There are some landing spots people are talking about. San Francisco 49ers, his hometown team, would be one on high on the list for him to go to if he does. Good O-line that could – that can block for him so he doesn't get too hurt as a 46-year-old man. Um, And then imagine him going back to New England, playing with Bill Belichick, and ending his career. People are saying that could happen, and it would be such a Brady thing to do to end his career back in the Patriots uniform.
0: Yeah, kind of a last hurrah with the franchise that really made him a household name and the greatest of all time. Maybe we'll see. He'll probably reevaluate. It's just uh, not what he wanted for the end of this season. The Cowboys move on, and the divisional playoffs are on tap for next weekend. Go Giants, beat the Eagles. We'll be right back on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Earlier today on The Guy Benson Show, back in our first hour, Katie Pavlich joined us, editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor, my colleague twice over. We talked about the news of the day, a lot going on in politics. Here's a piece of that discussion with our friend, Katie Pavlich. Biden was at National Action Network on MLK Day, and he had many interesting thoughts on many different topics, including how law enforcement officers should do their job differently than they do, in cut 20, here's part of what he said.:
5: To emphasize de-escalation, we have to retrain cops as to why should you always shoot for de- with deadly force? The fact is, if you need to use your weapon, you don't have to do that. And look, to call a fresh approach to recruit and how we recruit, how we hire, how we train, how we promote, and how we retain retain law enforcement.
0: So, I mean, some of that stuff sounds fine, at least in theory. Uh, you know, the new approach, I think, it would depend on the details. And maybe what he has in mind is, is not what would be a great approach. But he was saying if they need to use their weapons, they don't have to do that. I think he means shooting with deadly force. This seems to be kind of a version of the why don't cops just shoot criminals in the knee type argument that we hear sometimes that I think betrays, Katie, total ignorance of how law enforcement is trained for good reason?
1: Well, they're completely counterproductive arguments. You can't on one hand say you need to find ways to retain police uh, to address this issue of morale and recruitment, which has been fomented by the defund the police movement for exactly the reason Joe Biden just said. Because of all of the second guessing of every single move that police make, uh, 99% of the shootings that go, go on in this country from police using deadly force are justified. Uh, and yet the president wants to put police in a position that are not only dangerous for them, but dangerous for their communities, because then the police don't actually engage in active policing to make sure that criminals aren't running the streets. Now, there was a story two years ago of a Chicago police officer who hesitated to use uh, fatal force against a criminal and he beat her within an inch of her life and almost killed her and it was a result of this idea that police have to think twice in a situation where you have you know a split second to make a life or death uh, decision and when it comes from the president of the united states um on martin luther king jr day uh from an ignorant position while he's also trying to somehow argue we need to keep police recruiting high. Uh, They're completely counterproductive measures, um, and it's contrary to the way that the president has really handled this topic in the past on a policy level.
0: Then on the issue of guns and gun control, he sort of brought back and revived an argument that he has made several times before, uh, which I think is really not nearly as clever as he apparently thinks it is kind of saying, well, if the armed citizenry really wants to guard itself against a tyrannical government, well, good luck because we've got, he said in the past, nuclear weapons. In this case, he was talking about fighter jets. Here's cut 21.
5: I love my right-wing friends who talk about the tree of liberty is water of the blood of patriots. If you need to work about taking on the federal government, you need some F-15s. You don't need an RAR-15. I'm serious. Think about it.
0: My full interview with Katie Pavlich available at Guybensonshow.com, also part of the full podcast, the entire show, start to finish on demand, totally free every day. Guybensonshow.com, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a very funny look at an age-old debate between Americans and foreigners, especially Europeans, a comedian put his spin on it. He did a great job. We'll play that for you and discuss when we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Home stretch on this Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show. Tune in tonight. I'm on special report on the panel. Mike Emanuel in for Brett Bayer. Be on set here at the DC Bureau. Around 6.45 Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Up to New York tomorrow and Thursday for some TV. Very busy schedule while I'm up there. We'll tell you about that on this program tomorrow. In the meantime, we'll remind you that our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free, every day, on demand. So whenever I travel internationally, which I try to do maybe once a year, sometimes more, I enjoy some repartee, some banter, with folks who live abroad about some of the weird idiosyncrasies that we, as Americans, engage in. And, of course, there's different vernacular and terms that people use even in the English-speaking world that differ from country to country, region to region. So there'll be some good-natured ribbing back and forth on that. Then there are other issues such as the metric system versus what we do here. And then Fahrenheit versus Celsius when it comes to temperatures – I have never understood the Celsius scale, and that's not because I've never lived abroad. In fact, I grew up as a young kid abroad where Celsius was a thing. I was in Hong Kong, which at the time was a British colony. I remember vaguely we used Celsius. It's just something that I never really internalized. And then moving back to the U.S., you just get right into Fahrenheit, and I know that sometimes – The Brits or anyone else, especially in Europe, they like to make fun of us. They're like, oh, the whole rest of the world uses Celsius, and then these weirdos use Fahrenheit. Like, here's a map of the world that uses Fahrenheit, and it's like just us. And then the Murica response to that is, well, here's a similar map of the world, in fact, exactly the same, showing all the countries that haven't landed on the moon and the ones that have. It's just us. So we can take a bow, let the eagle soar. Wave a giant flag. But the thing about the temperature stuff, and I have to admit, as someone who I think is, like, relatively well-traveled and worldly and cosmopolitan enough, I am so bad at Celsius. I don't understand it. I have none of it even committed roughly to memory. Every time it comes up, I'm Googling on my phone. (laughs) It's like the conversion. And it makes no sense to me. The only part of Celsius that makes sense to me is that zero degrees Celsius is freezing. Aside from that, it's like, forget it. And it's on a much smaller scale as it pertains to temperatures that human beings would ever have to deal with. So, like, if you're on a flight headed abroad and the pilot comes on with the uh, little uh, pilot update as you're getting ready to land... And they always tell you all sorts of little details that matter absolutely nothing to travelers, like visibility. They tell you how much visibility they've got. Okay, great. Good luck. You've got the only window looking straight ahead, so you do what you need to do. You've got a lot of computers up there and radar or whatever. I'm glad that you've got visibility. They've got the uh, wind speed that they tell you about. It's uh, blowing out of the northeast. Okay, great. Terrific. Is that going to impact my experience sitting here in seat 21F? I mean, probably not. And then they finally get around to the temperature, which might be helpful, except sometimes they'll tell you Celsius. It's like, okay, totally useless. Do I need to put on a jacket when I get off the plane? So the point of this is to lead up to something that I saw on Instagram today. I think the Instagram algorithms have got me pretty figured out at this point, at least for the type of content I'm looking for when it comes to Instagram videos. I get served a ton of dog videos that are just delightful. There was one of a husky singing today, made me smile. Then I will get lots of aviation-related stuff especially luxury first-class cabins on some of these exotic airlines. I get a lot of that. I get some food preparation stuff. I get some attractive gentlemen. Like, oh, look at his workout regimen or whatever. This is what comes up. It's like, okay. And another one is comedy. I guess I liked a few stand-up comedy bits that I had seen or people had sent me, and then it's just, like, flooding into my feed. So I discover some funny people. Through Instagram that just get like shoved at me by the machine and when I like them enough and they show up enough and I enjoy their stick then I follow them thus doubling down on the algorithm so I haven't followed this guy yet but I saw his little bit about Celsius versus Fahrenheit today his name is Simon Fraser he's from London he's in his mid-20s but he moved to the US I believe he moved to Ohio in 2021, and he goes on this whole shtick about how Fahrenheit is so much more intuitively better than Celsius, and it's nice to get a Brit saying these things because he's making the points that I guess I sort of understood in my bones as an American, but he's making them rather cleverly, and now I've got this that I can throw back at my friends whenever they question America on Fahrenheit, because it just makes a lot more sense. It makes so much more sense, especially after you've listened to comedian Simon Fraser lay it all out. Cut 28. Love America, man. Love
2: Love everything about America. Fahrenheit? Oh, my God. Dude,
0: Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit, like you.
7: 50 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% hot. 100 degrees Fahrenheit,
2: 100% hot. if it's any hotter than that, it's too hot. You tell me it's 14 degrees Celsius, I have
4: no idea what to do with that information.
0: Do I need a jacket, can I wear shorts, will it snow, who is the prime minister? This is how stupid Celsius is as a system. I mean, amen. And the American crowd eating it up with a giant spoon. Spoons, by the way, not covered in the metric system. We don't do that here. Big old American spoons. And then he pivots to making an additional point that I never thought about, which is the precision of Fahrenheit versus Celsius as it pertains to people's personal taste, especially in their homes. This is another important angle to this story. Cut 29. 69 degrees Fahrenheit to 71 degrees Fahrenheit are all 22 degrees Celsius. Anyone who has ever lived with someone who likes it a little bit colder at night will tell you there is a big difference it's between
5: 69 degrees Fahrenheit and 71 degrees Fahrenheit. You change the thermostat one degree from 69 to 70, and break into your room at 3
0: He's right. Some people like to sleep at a very specific temperature, and in Celsius, as he's saying, multiple degrees Fahrenheit equal one degree Celsius. Much less precise, much less easy to, I say, come to a position of mutual understanding if you're sleeping under the same roof. By the way, it's not even like you can just say, okay, Fahrenheit to Celsius is you just subtract a certain number of degrees or add a certain number of degrees. It's much more complicated than that. It's like you multiply it by two and then subtract seven or something crazy like that. Don't quote me on that. I'm making that up. But it's something fairly complex. Why fact check me on that? How you actually do the calculation, which is just far too much math for me to do. Thankfully, we have the Google machine. Do you have an answer? No, he's, he's uh, tapping away at his computer, so we'll get you that in just a moment. But I've never heard it, even though it's done quite humorously there, and I think that's a very good bit from Simon Fraser, this comedian I'd never heard of until today. He's also exactly right. I'm almost a little bit jealous that I never thought of this, why the Fahrenheit system makes so much sense, the whole percentage thing. If it's zero degrees, it's zero percent hot. If it's 100 degrees, it's 100% hot. If it's greater than 100, it's way too hot. If it's below zero, it's way too cold. And then the scale of 1 degree to 99 degrees, you can sort of easily make judgments about what kind of clothing you would need to wear in preparation for that based on a very easy, quick mnemonic in your head. All right, Wyatt has an answer, it seems.
8: So does this sound about right? Multiply by 1.8 and add
0: 32? I mean, could be. Sounds right enough and ridiculous. I'm not going to do that, especially with a little computer in my pocket. I'll just Google it. that's not an easy conversion. I'm not saying that America should turn into a giant imperialist power and try to take over the world. That is not something that I advocate. But... If we were to do so, I think the imposition of Fahrenheit by brute force would be a righteous use of our power. (laughs) I have to send this clip to some friends now. Christine, did you enjoy this? Was this an enjoyable soundbite or was this a waste of time?
3: Oh, I loved every second of that soundbite. I also really enjoyed your pilot imitation. Didn't know you had that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, they do that sort of like deep but vocal fry thing. You can't quite hear them properly. They're always a little bit nonchalant about everything. Too school for cool. They're a pilot after all. But, yeah, they they give you all that info. If I ever did stand-up comedy, I would probably do a bit about all the useless, miscellaneous (laughs) surroundings, atmospheric information they give you before landing that has no bearing whatsoever on your day, your life, anything like that.
3: That is very funny. I mean, I was always listening. Every time I go on a plane, I have to talk to the pilot, and usually I ask them to say hello to me. So that's what I'm usually waiting for when they give their
0: announcements. how – what is this? You get on the plane and you try to talk to the pilots? Have there been any security incidents? Have you been dragged off the plane? Like there's a deranged person trying to get into the cockpit.
3: No, I have a very – I have a whole system to get on the plane. Like my right hand has to touch the plane for a few seconds. Then I turn what? left and go straight into the cockpit. Every time. You could ask Bobby about this.
0: What? <laughs>
3: I have a very – yeah. You have to touch yeah, the, the a...
0: airplane, like the exterior of the airplane for a certain period of time r- before you
3: – My right hand has to touch it. And I have to wear a certain Why? necklace when I go <laughs>
0: – What? It's just – What?
3: Yeah, I wear, I wear a certain cross. Like it's the same cross that I've had since I was little, but it has to be that one cross. I, yeah or I guess else we've never flown together
0: or else I it's know. a bad outcome on the know. flight which yeah. doesn't happen christine i mean flights are extremely safe and then you go up to the cockpit welcome uh-huh. or unwelcome and uh-huh. you what insist talk that they give you a shout out on the pa system
3: yeah well usually like i'll talk to them sometimes they'll let me sit in the seat you know how they let the kids do they'll let they let the adults do it too um, I'll talk to them a little bit. I'll just, I always joke around. I'm like, are you guys sure you're up? You're okay? Like, do you need a cup of coffee before I go sit down? You're, like, just like, don't do anything that's going to cause any problems. We kind of joke sometimes. And then I turn around See, and Bobby usually, yeah. I would <laughs> go on.
0: not, I would not feel more comfortable or more safe on a flight knowing that Christine had just been in a pilot seat. God knows what kind of button she was pushing by accident. She's probably doing a sobriety check on the pilots when, in fact, they should be doing one on her. This is brand-new information. I can barely even compute this. This is more of a revelation even than the Celsius to Fahrenheit calculation that we were just talking about. We might have to re-explore this in greater depth soon. That is a bunch of new information that just has me at a loss. And it's just as well because we're out of time anyway. So – Let's take just a short 21-hour break. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. See you tonight on Special Report. On the panel, it is The Guy Benson Show.